Good morning, church family. See if we can stay awake together today, yes? Daylight savings, it's good to see you all. Well, we are coming to the end of our study of Galatians. Can you believe it? It's been a little while. You're like, yes, we can. It's been a while. So we are coming to the end of that study. Let me tell you a few things coming up on the, you know, in the, in the coming week. So we've got Easter coming. We'll be here April 9th. And I just want to kind of tell you how we're going to prepare our hearts together uh, in our life together as a body. So uh, as we prepare for Easter over the next four weeks, we're going to do a series on the power of the cross. Because I think, you know, often we talk about the saving power of the cross, about being saved by the work of the cross. But we don't often maybe break that work down in an understanding of, of all the miraculous things that were accomplished at the cross of Christ. And so we're just going to try and take that uh, a little bit slowly over the next couple of weeks to prepare our hearts then to come to Good Friday uh, and to reflect upon the cross of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus. So we'll be doing that over the weeks to come. Our staff team is preparing a Holy Week devotional for you uh, so that every day during Holy Week, you'll get an opportunity to just participate in reflections, all of us together. Uh, the Saturday of, um, I guess, Good Friday then service will be 6.30 p.m. and we'll come together, reflect upon the cross. And then the next day, our children's ministry is doing something for parents and kids. I think it's gonna be really sweet. It's gonna be just uh, an opportunity to, as a family, then guide your kids through reflections on the cross and then coming into Easter Sunday. Uh, it'll be here on site and it's gonna be a really sweet opportunity. Uh, and let me just say, if you don't have young kids, you're still welcome to come, all right? So everyone's welcome to come and just journey through that together. It is designed specifically for parents and kids, but... Everyone's welcome to come. So we'll have that Saturday. And then our Easter services. Uh, we'll come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together at 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11. So we'll remind you of those times as we get a little closer. But just wanted to kind of chart that course for you over the coming weeks as we're wrapping up Galatians today. All right, so if you have your Bible, go to Galatians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 11 through 18, the end of the book. And I was, as I was reflecting and preparing this week, got me thinking about grammatical idiosyncrasies that I've noticed as I've lived in different parts of the country. So if you've traveled the country and lived in different places or just gone and visited, you will notice that sometimes people think there are grammatical things that are correct and they are not correct. So let me pick on my own people here for a moment. Uh, I grew up in a land where we say we're fixing something. And we don't mean we're taking something that's broken and repairing it. Something that's broken and repairing it. What do we mean? We mean we're about to do something. We're fixing to do it, right? We're about to do it. It is not grammatically correct, but we have convinced ourselves that it is, all right? Or I lived in Chicago for a while, uh, and I learned this one when I got there. Everyone would say to me, we're going, to the, we're going out to eat. Do you want to go with? I just kept waiting for the end of that sentence. With him, her, you, us, somebody I don't like? What? Go with who? So... Do you want to go with? And can we pick on ourselves for a moment here? Have you noticed in Pennsylvania, you need a lot more to be's in your sentences than you have. In fact, I'll be proud of you. You just throw them wherever you want. And if you have it to be in your sentence, I'm going to be proud of you because things don't need washed. They need to be washed. The car doesn't need repaired. It needs to be repaired. So you just throw a good to be in wherever you want and we'll count it, all right? I don't, if it's the beginning, the end, I don't care. We're gonna call it good, all right? So that's a silly way to think about the fact that our beliefs lead to our actions. If I believe something's grammatically correct, I say it as if it's correct, and that leads to my actions in that thing, right? And 
that's true in a broader way as we've gone through Galatians. That's really what Paul's been trying to teach us, that our beliefs lead to our actions in a much more important way than whether or not we say to be or don't say to be or we end a sentence with with or whatever it may be. He's saying, if you believe that you are justified by works, that leads to one kind of life. And that life is really slavery. And if you believe you're justified by faith in Christ alone, that leads to a different kind of life. And that's a life of freedom. That's what he's been trying to impart to us through this entire book. And as we come to the end of Galatians, Paul does an awesome job, like a great professor. Uh, in these last verses, he's gonna give us a summary of the whole book. He's gonna do it by contrasting his life to the life of his opponents. And he's gonna say that there are these different freedoms that come. And he's gonna talk about the kind of way that they live and are motivated and are, and are moved. And that's really slavery. And he's gonna show how he lives and is motivated and moved. And in those things, so I'm gonna offer you six freedoms that he's going to share with us today, both in the negative through his opponents and in the positive through his own life. And really it is a way of summarizing the message of the whole book, which is very simple. It is there is no justification apart from justification by faith in Jesus. That's the only way to get right with God. And in proclaiming that, he's telling us that that's true freedom, what true freedom looks like. Now, you remember, uh, if you've been with us through the series, that we've, when Paul talks about freedom, he predominantly, in a, in a big, overarching way, he means freedom from the law, freedom from sin, and freedom from death. So you've heard me say that a lot as we've gone through the book, freedom from the law and from, the sin, and from sin and from death. And these are freedoms that are gonna come underneath those. Those are the big, overarching categories, the umbrella, if you will. And today he's gonna give us six freedoms that are really the result of that things that are kind of downstream from that, that mark the life of someone who believes they're justified by faith rather than being justified by works. And so, you know, it's a bit of a summary. Don't worry, next week when you show up, I will not have scantrons at the entrance for you to take your Galatians exam, okay? Uh, so I won't do that to you, but it's a good review for us. And all of us who have been out of school for a while just shuddered at the thought of a scantron. Do you remember trying to bubble it in and always thinking like, but if I get a little outside the line, it's gonna count it wrong, even though the answer was right? Oh man, I was just, that was excruciating to me. I'm so sorry, students. Do y'all still use Scantrons? It's all gibberish what you're saying to me right now. I'm gonna pretend like you said no, and I'm gonna say, praise God, good, good for you. If you said yes, then all right. All right, so only justification by faith leads to freedom in Christ. So I said there are six freedoms. Let's just jump right into the first one and we'll see that he emphasizes some more than others, but let's read our text first. Verses 11 through verse 18. We'll have it on the screen here if you don't have a Bible in your hands. It says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the center of our passage right there today. That's justification by faith stated in one very simple sentence. So let me just read it again. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. 
And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. <clears throat> so I said, let's dive right in. The first freedom that we see here is the freedom to love. And this isn't as readily obvious in the text, but let me show you where it is because you can read past it as just sort of um, as historical details and almost as the, form, the formulation of a good letter, right? But the first freedom we see is the freedom to love and it comes from being justified by faith. And some of the freedoms we're gonna talk about, I'm gonna, it's gonna be really obvious how they are expressions of freedom and then We'll talk about how they result from justification by faith. My guess is you get right out of the gate when I say that a person isn't truly free unless they're able to love deeply and well, that that probably resonates a little bit. I mean, we probably all recognize that a life that isn't tender, uh, a life that, that does not feel compulsion and affection for others is not any kind of life we want to live. We want to live a life where there's the experience of that kind of tenderness of relationship and affection and joy. Well, here's where Paul shows that. The very first verse and the very last verse of our text. In verse 11, you notice he said, see with what large letters I'm writing in my own hand. And that might seem like an odd thing to say, but here's what Paul is doing. There was a practice in the ancient Near East and Paul was no different than anybody else. When someone who was in authority would write a letter to someone, they would use someone called, very fun word, an amanuensis, all right? An amanuensis is a scribe. There's someone who Paul would sit back and he would say, this is what I want you to write. He would speak the words and the amanuensis would write it, all right? Now, at the end of many of his letters, what Paul does is he essentially takes the quill or the pen out of the hand of the scribe, the amanuensis, takes it up himself and begins to write his final words. And so these final words, he has taken up the pen and he's noting that the handwriting is different. He's saying, see with what large letters I'm writing to you? In other words, like this is my handwriting, not the handwriting of the scribe who's been writing this all along. Now you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? What you need to understand is that anytime someone in authority takes up the pen themselves, it's their way of saying, I care so much about you that I'm gonna write these last words myself. I love you deeply. And in this case, you might say, in spite of the trouble you've caused me, Galatians, remember, oh, foolish Galatians. In spite of all the difficulty and turmoil and trial, I love you so much. Let me take up the pen now and write these last words of summary with my own hand, just because I want you to know how much I care for you. It might be like thinking the equivalent of a handwritten note versus a typed out note, right? When you write a handwritten note to someone, what does that communicate to them? I stopped, I sat down, I took time and care to write this note to you because I love you, because I care about you, right? Now in verse 18, let's, let's combine that with what we find in verse 18. Because look again, what does he say? He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, amen. Now look, here's what I don't want you to see. Don't read that. Paul begins and ends a lot of his letters with... Um, blessings, right? So he will often say at the beginning of one of his letters, grace and peace to you, Corinthians, grace and peace to you, Ephesians, right? Have you noticed this if you read your New Testament? That's not just a nice way to start a letter. That's not just dear Sally, right? Or dear Corinthians. That is his way of saying, I recognize that you are objects of the grace of God and I'm asking him to pour more of it on you. I'm asking him to give you more of it. I love you so much 
that what I'm going to say at the beginning of my letter, grace and peace to you, and what I'm going to say at the end of my letter, grace to you, is not just a nice wish. It's not just a nice thought. It's not just a way of saying, dear so-and-so, and sincerely, like we might sign our letters at the beginning and end. It's a way of saying, this is my deepest heart for you, that you would receive the unmerited favor of God, that he would pour more of it out upon you today. Now, if someone said that to you today, I love you so dearly that my greatest desire for you is that God would pour such rich favor upon you in every aspect and area of your life. Might you feel they loved you just a bit? I want him to pour his favor out on your family and upon your, the life of your mind. And I want his favor to rest upon you in your business endeavors and your works and your home and your kids. I want his grace to abound in every place and in every way. Do you see why I'm saying that's an expression of love? That's what Paul's getting at. And you can just read past those, right? As little kind of, we just get used to it. If, you read your, if you're reading your Bible, you're gonna get used to those kinds of phrases. But I don't want you to be numb to those kinds of phrases because they mean something very deep. That's what Paul is saying. Grace to you, brothers. I love you. Grace to you. Unmerited favor from God to you. Now, why does the freedom to love, if we, if we all accept that a life of freedom has to be marked by love, that a, a, a life that does not love is not very free. So why would we say that stems from justification by faith? Now, I'm not suggesting that people who are justified or believe they can be justified by their works can't love. But what I am saying is that there's a kind of love that only streams forward from justification by faith. And here's the difference. If you believe you're justified by your works, then you ultimately believe that you have earned God's love by what you've done. And if you believe that, then you're not going to be able to freely give love to others unless they perform as well as you have. If you believe the ultimate creator of the universe has loved you based upon what you have performed, then you're gonna require everybody else to perform too. Now try having your kids raised underneath that. But if you believe that you have been freely loved apart from anything that you've done, any merit that you have, and not only freely loved apart from any merit, but that love was initiated towards you. Like 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, we love God, why? Because he first loved us. What, what Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, in this is the love of God, right? In this is the love of God. He says, while we were his enemies, right? While we were still his enemies, he sent his son to die for us. Christ died for us. Romans chapter five. It's an initiating, pursuing kind of love and it's freely given apart from any work or merit. So when I believe that I'm only justified by faith, now I have a resource to draw from because love has been freely given freely received and now can be what? Freely given again. And it doesn't have to be earned. Here's the thing. If you believe in, in justification by works, you will love for a while until someone doesn't perform. And then you will run out of the ability to love eventually. And here's the remarkable thing about justification by faith. I'm not suggesting we nail this all the time, but the remarkable thing about justification by faith is you have within you now a well of love to draw from for your enemies, for those who offend you, for those who continue to persecute you. 
You have a well to draw from because it's not a well of I will love as long as they're worthy of love. It's a well of love that is I can love regardless of the worth of the object of that love because that's the kind of love you received. Does that make sense? Is that freedom? It is freedom. Yeah, retaliation, revenge. It's not, <laughs> that's not freedom. Love is freedom. All right, let's go to our second example. And this one may sound a little bit almost oxymoronic, but the freedom to suffer. Let me show you why I say that. The freedom to suffer. Now, this one, I think I do need to explain how is that freedom? And then why does it stem from or come from justification by faith? Look at verse 12 and verse 17 with me, okay? So let's get our eyes back in the text. And after verse 11, now in verse 12, he says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So he's speaking about the motives of his opponents and he's saying they are trying to avoid persecution. Now you remember in chapter five, verse 11, if you were with us during that part of our study, that Paul said, I'm being persecuted and all I would need to do in order to make that persecution stop is I would need to embrace the law, circumcision. So this group of, of religious Jews is coming against me and persecuting me. And I could absolutely proclaim Jesus as long as I would add the law to it. If I would add the law to it, all the persecution would stop. It would all go away. But he says, I can't do that because it's not true. I can't add the law to Jesus. It's Jesus and only Jesus and always only Jesus. Not Jesus plus my best efforts and my best works. And so I can make all this go away, <laughs> but I, it can't, it won't because I won't change my message. Now look at what he says here about his opponents. They're motivated by avoiding that same persecution, Paul says, that I'm receiving. I'm being persecuted, they're not. Their motives, at least in part, are driven by a desire to not suffer and to not go through trials and to not be persecuted. Look at what he says in verse 17 now, comparing, you know, by contrast about himself. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I what? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He doesn't mean there he literally has the same wounds Jesus had. He means that he bears the marks of persecution for the sake of Jesus. He was beaten with rods. He was whipped and lashed. He was set adrift at sea, shipwrecked. He had encountered numerous trials, numerous persecutions. And he's saying, all of those things have taken a toll on me, but they, have, they are indicators. They are indicators of my faithfulness, not my faithlessness. So let's just for a moment now, there's, there's a couple of ways that we need to understand how is suffering an expression of freedom? How is it that we need freedom to suffer? Now, I am not suggesting, and I don't mean to make light of suffering in any way. I'm not suggesting we are to seek out suffering, but there is a suffering, whether it be trials or persecution, that can come in the path of faithfulness. And when it does, our ability to engage it well represents true freedom or an expression of freedom that can only come through justification by faith. Let me talk to you about why it is freedom. The first is what we see here from Paul. Do you see that what he's saying is the marks of the trials that are on my body are actually a, an, an affirmation of my faithfulness. That's how he sees them. Not as maybe God is displeased with me, which is how we operate outside of Jesus. 
We go, oh, I'm suffering. There's difficulty. What did I do to deserve this or earn this? Where did this come? I got to fix this. I got to change this. And he's saying, the marks upon my body are the marks that have come from faithfulness. Now, I'm not suggesting the suffering or trials that come through our own sinful actions. I'm talking about suffering and trial in the path of faithfulness, in the path of obedience, okay? When that comes, the very suffering we endure becomes a marker that we are doing what pleases God. Do you see that? That's what he's saying. Now, let me point out two other things that aren't necessarily right here in this text, but like 1 Peter 4 gives us a great example. Let me show you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And again, there's a sobriety to this. This is not, let's, let's just like sing zippity doo about suffering like it's no big deal. But look at what he says now in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, the same mind Christ had about his sufferings. For, uh, so arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Pause. What's he saying? Peter's saying suffering has a way of eradicating sin from us. When we endure trial, it doesn't just affirm, hey, we're on, we're on the right path. If I'm, if I'm suffering because I'm on the path of faithfulness and path of obedience. It doesn't just bring that affirmation Paul's talking about. Peter's saying it actually removes sin from us. It helps us separate from sin. And that's freedom too. Do you see that? Now, the last thing then, and he goes on to say, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, we'll connect that last phrase. It's probably better connected in some other places in scripture, but I'll just, I'm just gonna give you this one for the, for the last bit um, for the sake of our time. So when we think about freedom and suffering, the other thing I want you to see why suffering can represent freedom is that there is an identification with Christ that is only received through suffering that is not received anywhere else. There's an understanding of the sufferings of Christ. There's an intimacy with him that is born out of suffering that is not received anywhere else. Now, I know I'm saying a very weighty thing, but unless you grasp and comprehend that suffering trial, uh, they have to be met with that kind of truth. And it doesn't make them easy. It doesn't make them light. It doesn't make them like, I'll just, you know, they don't go away immediately. But when you know that suffering trial in the path of faithfulness and obedience brings with it deeper intimacy with your Lord because you identify with his sufferings and understand them in a way you would not have otherwise. You experience his intimacy and closeness with you. You see sin being put out of your life through those sufferings like Peter is talking about. And they become, as you endure them, an affirmation that you are moving forward on the path that God has given you to serve him fully and completely regardless of the cost because that is what your life is for. When you understand those things, there's a way in which suffering becomes an expression of freedom in the life of a believer. Does that make sense? Now that's, I know that's weighty, okay? But you need that. The scriptures testify to it. Now, how does justification by faith bring that about? How does justification by faith bring that about? Well, the way it does it, and there's, there's a handful of things we could say here, but the most important one is just to say this. Justification by faith 
brings you into relationship with God. Therefore, you are never alone in the midst of trial and suffering. And he's the one communicating all those things about freedom to you that we just said. But if I'm justified by works, I'm still constantly earning God's love. And so what happens is suffering becomes, what did I do, God? What must I change? How must I operate differently? Why don't you love me? Whereas suffering in the path of faithfulness in the presence of God, overwhelming that and speaking into it in that trial brings about those freedoms that we're talking about. I know it's very nuanced, but it's yeah, really important because we're all gonna go through trials. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. All right, so that's our second freedom, okay? Our third freedom is freedom from self-centeredness. Now, I think this is somewhat obvious as to why this is freedom. Uh, The freedom of self-forgetfulness is a beautiful freedom, isn't it? The freedom to not be so self-concerned or self-involved. And here, Paul is gonna question his opponent's motives and he's gonna contrast his own again right at the center of our text today. And he's already questioned their desire. They're just trying to avoid persecution, he says. That's motive number one. But motive number two, he's gonna say, they just want to be made a big deal of. They care more about their own reputation than they do about the reputation of Jesus. So look at what he says in verse 13 and 14 when he says this. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, he had said earlier that those who were saying you need to be circumcised, they weren't keeping the whole law themselves and therefore couldn't be justified by circumcision because they weren't keeping all of the law. If you try and keep one part as your justification, you gotta keep it all. He says, and they're not doing that. So he's just repeating that here. And then he says, they're doing that because they want to be able to say to others, look how we convince the Galatians. Look how we have these followers. Look how we have influence. Look how we have authority. Look, look, look. And what is all that about? It's about them saying, look at who? Me. Look at how intellectually strong I am. Look how influential I am. And now he contrasts his own motives with the strongest statement in our whole text. (laughs) What does he say? What a beautiful contrast. He says, look, they wanna boast in your flesh. They wanna be made a big deal of because of convincing you. But far be it from me to boast except there's only one kind of boasting Paul wants to do. And what is it? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, who does Paul wanna make a big deal out, out of? Jesus. And that's the difference. And there's a freedom of self-forgetfulness of ridding yourself of self-centeredness that comes from justification by faith. And let me make this strong statement and suggest this. I don't think it's possible to be free from self-centeredness when your root is justification by works. Because in its very nature, justification by works always goes back to what I have done and therefore it always must make a big deal of myself. I must offer what I've done. I must, others must see what I have done. God first, but then others too, right? When we believe that works play any part in our justification, it will always lead back to self-centeredness. But when we believe that we are justified by faith and that it's freely given, that we didn't earn it and no merit of ours had any part to do with it, where does it, what freedom results from that? The freedom of self-forgetfulness. I'm not thinking about me anymore. I'm just thinking about the one who set me free. I'm just thinking about him. He's the one. I'm boasting in him, not in me. Everything is him. Any obedience that I 
exercise is now done only in his power through his spirit. I only yielded to him because he was gracious to help me to yield. I stay with him because he holds me. Everything is him. It's him and him and him again. And there's just no room for thinking about me. It rids us of self-centeredness radically. It is not possible to drink from the headwaters of justification by faith and cling to self-centeredness. By its very nature, that water goes downstream and produces humility and self-forgetfulness. And man, what a good thing it is. The two most self-forgetful people I think I know in my life are my mother and my mother-in-law. They are remarkable women. And maybe the most remarkable thing about them is how they serve others, even when others offend them or overlook them or are ungrateful towards them and they just keep caring for them. Why? Because they don't think about themselves. They're fully confident. They are not in any way devoid of any sense of confidence. They're not shrinking back. They are deeply confident women but they just don't spend a lot of time thinking about themselves. They think about others because they are highly self-forgetful. And then I compare myself by contrast. And I'm thinking, well, I had to make sure Amanda knew I emptied the dishwasher before I went to bed. And that that laundry got folded while you were gone. I just don't know if you noticed it in the basket over there or not. I'm not nearly self-forgetful enough. I mean, don't you, don't you love the moments where by the grace of God, you are self-forgetful and you don't need credit for something. You don't need anybody to notice it. And you just, you're just so thrilled to have had the privilege to do it. Aren't those the sweetest moments? It's a quiet crowd. I hope those are sweet moments to you. Yeah. All right, let's go to the next freedom. Now, the next two are connected, all right? And we're gonna hit these, so we're gonna kind of bring them together. But go to the second half of verse 14, after he says, I'm only gonna boast in the cross of Jesus. Then he says, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, that's a really lovely turn of phrase, but let's make sure we understand what it means, that it's not just a cute little like, yeah, let's like, these mirror crucifixions. <coughs> Paul doesn't reference the cross lightly, by the way. So when he says, through the cross of Jesus, the world has been crucified to me, he's talking there about the freedom of desire that we have through justification by faith. What he's saying is, the world has been crucified to me means the values and the desires of the world that used to hold sway over me, they no longer do. I'm dead to those. They don't appeal to me anymore. Now, he's not suggesting those desires are completely gone in other places like Romans 7. He acknowledges they, they're still present in us, but he says they are not the ultimate controlling, dictating factor in my life any longer. The world has been crucified to me. And if I could just, brothers and sisters, say to you, you need to repeat that to yourself a lot. Because so often, I think we think that we are in Christ, but our old sinful desires are still the controlling, have the controlling interest or controlling stake in who we are or in the way our minds operate, in the way our hearts operate. And that's not true. You experience them as strong, yes, and they can be. But they are dead and dying and going away. 
and they are not nearly as strong as the compulsion towards righteousness in you. They are not. By definition, they are not, which is gonna get to the next thing of the freedom identity that we're gonna talk about. But, I, but you have got to begin from the place that says, because I am in Christ, the world is crucified to me. It is. It's not the world is crucified to Paul and maybe it will be to me as I grow into a certain place of maturity. He's speaking about a reality that comes from justification by faith. And if you are justified by faith, then the world is crucified to you. It's not a maybe, it's not an if, it's not a matter of a certain place of maturity. That is true of you. Do you believe that? Yeah, it's true of you. The world is crucified to you and you to the world, which means the world no longer has any interest in you either. The world doesn't find you so appealing. They think of you as foolish, silly, small, intellectually inept. The world does not take an interest in you, does not consider the things you value valuable, does not find you desirable. The crucifixion goes both ways. So how does justification by faith bring that about? Let's talk about that for a moment. Right, if I say the world is crucified to you, right, this freedom of desire, go back to what we said, same thing with suffering. Justification by faith brings you into the presence of God. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but the, the verse on the cross right outside the back of this wall here is 2 Corinthians 3.18, and it just says one phrase from it. It says, transformed into his likeness. But that full text, that verse is... Um, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Now, what Paul is talking about there to the Corinthians is he's saying, you know, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, Moses would go near God, go into the presence of God, not to view him face to face, but the experience of nearness to God was so altering and so profound and so glorious that he would come back from that and his face would shine with such radiance that the people, not looking on God, just looking on Moses having been near God, now could not look at Moses. And so Moses would have to wear a veil. That's how great the manifest glory of God is. Pretty astounding, right? And he says, but when you came to Christ... What happened is the veil, not just between you and another person who had been with God, but the veil between you and God himself has been removed. The very thing that you could not look at, even though it was fading, because Moses' face, eventually the glory would fade from his experience of that being in the presence of God, even though it was fading and passing, now you have a permanent experience of the presence of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You have access to him. And what does Paul say? How are you transformed? Beholding the glory of the Lord, you are being transformed into his likeness. There is something about entering the presence of God, beholding his manifest glory. This is why intimate, deep prayer lives are so important in the lives of believers. It's why diligent reflection and meditation on the scriptures is so important. There are other ways we experience the presence of God, but none more chief than those two. That we go to God through justification by faith, we have access to him. Do you see how profound that is? You are invited in. 
what once would have destroyed you to be in the presence of such holiness, now you are welcomed every day, at any moment of any hour. You are invited in, called a friend, called a son or a daughter, and invited to dwell there and linger there and dialogue with the Father and talk to him. And as you do, the glory of God transforms us into his likeness. I, I feel like I'm doing such short shrift to this. Like I'm just not even close to touching on it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I'm just not even, oh. Oh, friends, justification by faith. This is what it does. And so it brings this freedom of desire with it. That's how your, that's how your desires change because they're not just gotten rid of they're replaced with a deeper desire. When you've been in the presence of God, alcohol seems weak by comparison. When you've been in the presence of God, sexual immorality seems weak by, by comparison. You are transformed by being ushered into the very presence of the Holy One. And every other desire wanes and seems fleeting and falls away bit by bit time after time. Praise God. And that's freedom, by the way. Freedom of desire. Now, the other way that this freedom of desire happens, our passage shows us, is through freedom of identity. And that's our next freedom. And then we'll wrap up with one last one, okay? Freedom of identity. Look at verse 15. He says this. For, and you can say because, there's a cause and effect here. For or because neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. All right, so what he's saying, it doesn't matter if you are physically Jewish or physically Gentile, whether you've been circumcised or not, right? He's saying, Jews, you're not out of the equation. All that matters is, and you might expect him to say, faith. But he says, a new creation. So follow the flow of the passage. From verse 14, he says, I'm only gonna boast on the cross of Jesus. And through that cross, the world has been crucified to me. My desires have been changed. Now, just kind of skip the next part to make it more linear, Okay. My desires have been changed because, verse 15, I am a new creation. That's what matters. Not the old circumcision, not circumcision, but a new creation. So what's he saying? He's saying, my desires change because my identity has changed. I have the freedom of desire because I have freedom of identity. I am not the old me. I am the new me. Part of that is the desires I experience, but it's much more than that. Identity is not just desire. Identity is where you find your value. Identity is who names you, who calls you their own, to whom do you belong. That's what identity is. It's how you know your purpose in life is based. There may be nothing more important than understanding that in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That includes new desires. It includes a new station in life. It includes a new position in life. It includes a new status before the Lord. And nothing can undo it. Because when it's been freely given for faith, it cannot be taken based upon your performance ebbing and flowing. Uh, I started reading a book because my sixth grade daughter was reading a book, uh, a series of books, and it has quickly become my favorite fiction series that I've read probably in the last decade. So if you've ever, is anyone reading The Wingfeather Saga by Andrew Peterson? 
Okay, like two of you raised your hand. Let me highly recommend it to you. So I read these four books. They are junior high level, so it's good for all of us, all right? But I found very quickly that I was in love with the characters in this book. And here's what I found. The thing I didn't realize is from beginning to end, Andrew Peterson was weaving a story together. Andrew Peterson, by the way, writes a lot of the songs that we sing. Uh, he was weaving a story together that I did not even realize because it was sprinkled in so well and so subtly throughout. I did not realize the entire story was about being named by God, about being called his, about having a name in him and an identity in him until we got to about the last five chapters and I was literally almost knocked over by where the story went. Now, no spoilers for you, okay? But suffice to say, Janner Igaby, one of my new favorite characters in all of literature, so deeply profound. Now, not a lot of you have read it. In the first service when I referenced it, people literally shouted louder for that than anything else. Yes, Wing Feather Saga! So I highly recommend it. But it's this story about the importance. Everything in the story revolves around needing a name, needing an identity. And this is what you have through justification by faith. You have a name. You have been called a son or daughter of the king. I'm trying to remember to remind my kids before they get out of the car to go to school or anywhere they go, remember who you are. Remember who you are. You belong to the king. You are his. And he loves you. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. So that's the freedom of identity. Now, the last one, freedom of peace and mercy. Look at verse 16, and then we're gonna wrap up right here. As for all who walk by this rule, that's the rule of justification by faith. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now that phrase, the Israel of God, can mean one of two things, and I honestly, I don't know which it is. It either means Christians, all Christians, or it means Jews who will become Christians. So they are Israel physically, nationally, but they will become the Israel of God and they'll become the people of God. It could be either of those. Theologians kind of go back and forth over it. But ultimately what matters in this text then is that he's saying to them, whether it be Jews who become Christians or whether it be all Christians he's speaking about, he's saying, all who are justified by faith, peace and mercy be upon them. In the same way that he said, grace be upon you, he's saying, peace and mercy be upon you. Now, Think about the freedom that you experience when you are at peace with God. Think about the freedom you experience when you have mercy from God. And this is what Paul is saying to them. When you're justified by faith, when you're not trying to earn merit before God, then you have received the peace of God. It's the peace of no longer striving. It's the peace of no longer earning. It's the peace of being freely given the greatest gift that there is. And the peace with God that you receive through justification by faith leads to the peace of God that you experience on a day-to-day basis. Peace in every underlying circumstance. Peace in the midst of trial. Peace to stop doubting that the way God made you is exactly as he intended to make you. Peace to be satisfied with your appearance and how he's made you look, with your intellect that he's gifted you with, peace with the place he's called you to in life, peace with his plan for your life as it unfolds so you're not constantly uh, you know, throwing fists at God and wishing for a different plan to be unfolding in your life. That is peace with God that leads to the peace of God. 
and then mercy. And praise God for it because you and I are gonna leave here. We're gonna make some more mistakes this afternoon. I mean, we're tired. We got an hour less sleep. We're gonna make mistakes. Think about the freedom that it is to with every one of those times we come up short intentionally and unintentionally to turn in confession and repentance to God and every time hear in response, mercy. Mercy, not condemnation. My son has become the object of my condemnation so that you might become the object of my mercy. Mercy. Mercy again and then again tomorrow and then mercy again. It will be new in the morning for you. Mercy. Mercy one more time. There is mercy for you again today. My friends, let me say to you, as we talked about the identity piece, for those of you who are not in Christ, who who don't believe in him, I wanna say to you, all those old things can be left behind. Today, what can happen is that you can say the old you is no longer you. You turn and are justified by faith in what Jesus and Jesus alone has done and all those things that you think, I hate those things that I've done in my past, those are gone. They're no longer, they're what you were, but they're not who you are. Once you're in Christ Jesus, believers who are still hung up on the things that you once did, do you hear that by justification through faith, those things are no longer who you are, they're who you were? And do you hear that there is new mercy again today? There's peace again today to be given. That's freedom, isn't it? That's freedom. So friends, throughout this whole series, my hope for you as your pastor has been that you would see the absolute necessity of continuing to put to death that legalistic bent in each of us. It's subtle, it's sneaky, but it has to be put to death and we have to keep returning to justification by faith, both so that we experience the sweet intimacy with our Father that we're meant to have, so that we're full of His Spirit and able to live it out in the world so others would see how gracious and loving He is and what His truth is like, but also so that we might be the body that we're intended to be, a body full of grace and humility and love and peace and mercy. So I pray it's been a useful time for us. God's Word does not return void. We know that. So He will take hold of His Word in us and utilize it. My prayer for all of us is that we would just be in the power of the Holy Spirit, yielded to every, every bit of it so we might walk in it. All right, let's pray together and then we'll sing as we prepare to go our ways today. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We thank you for it. We ask that you would let it have its way with us. And we do, we believe all your promises are good, including that promise that you've given us that your word will not return void. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, each one of us in the unique ways that you know we need it. Thank you for your tenderness towards us, your fatherly love. May we be so tender in your hands that we don't, we don't need a strong correction to change course when that's necessary. May we just be ready to be changed and shifted because we've been impacted by your love, freely given. Thank you for it. Uh, we, we come to sing to you now, Lord, because we see your worth and your value. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.